if there's <laughs> if, if there's one thing that characterizes our friendship, but it's belaboring. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. We're here. This show should be called the Belabor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It could be part of the labor network. That we're be, belabored. Yeah, just an adjective. Are you ready to start the show? I guess the adverb would be laboriously, right? You wouldn't say belaboriously hmm. or or belaboredly. I don't think you'd say that, right? <sighs> I need some more coffee. I'm <laughs> I guess I'm sort of proving the point. Yeah, right? yeah. This is, I thought I might need some more coffee to get going this morning, and you did, and you did get more, and I did get a little bit more. And so, but not enough more, as it turns out. So this morning, I am enjoying. <laughs> well, I'll let you be the judge of that. Uh, this morning, I'm enjoying some some coffee uh, given to me by a listener. Oh, mm-hmm. you're thinking, why didn't you get some? Right, this is from listener Barbara. Oh, brought back on one of her latest travels in the jubilee year. Jubilee, what jubilee, of- jubilee usually means what? How many years is it jubilee? Fifty. Is it? I thought it was seventy five. Seventy five. I don't. Yeah, so I, I'm just making that up, but. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, she's listener Barbara in celebration of a significant milestone. Yay. Has taken a number of trips and on the latest trip has brought me back some, some coffee. Nice. From. Is that also what I'm drinking? No. Oh, okay. No. Yours is, uh, you know, our typical in-house oral argument brand. It tastes different. Yeah. I made a lot of it at once. Mm. Um, yeah. And the cup is different too. Yeah. You're drinking it out of that mug. Yeah. I can feel the the PCBs or whatever they are from this plastic. No, no, it's no, it it's all. Have any yeah, you got to talk to Meredith. It's all PCB free and yeah, phenyl, whatever. Yeah, we've been through a succession of different kinds of 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 contain you know vessels in our house. Mm. Um, you know, for me, it's like you know, you know, the old Nalgene bottles that you take like hiking and stuff, right? Yeah. We'd have a bunch of those, and right. they have something in it that's going to kill you. Yeah. And so then we switch to some other kind, and it's got something that's going to kill you. Oh, and sure. then you switch to some other kind. Those sick, remember when they went to the SIG bottles, like the, the you used to carry uh, yeah, co- yeah, fuel, yeah. you know, on, on backpacking trips, we carry fuel right. in these things, right? Mm-hmm. And suddenly they were popular as a water bottle. Right. And I could never quite get past the idea that when I, I'm tasting like white gas when I'm drinking out of these <laughs> things. Uh, but, um, uh, but then those things have something that'll kill you. And so now it's something else. So I, you know, Meredith's always chasing after these things. I, I don't want. I, I, don't I don't want you to feel. I'm not making a causal assertion about the fact that you gave this to me this morning to drink out of, and and it will ultimately play some role in my death. I'm not asserting that at all. No, I didn't. Yeah. Um, I think the causal chain for the, you know, plaque clogged arteries and cancer riddled limbs and all that stuff that I'm going to have is yeah. just, you're not going to be able to tease that apart. No, no. I'm kind of counting on that. that though, that's not my only way of trying to get at you. Jim. I mean, you, you, I think you, by the, by the, by the end, you'll be able to use <laughs> blunt, blunt force trauma and no one will know. I'd be like, that could, he could have been hit with a hammer oh, or it could goodness. just be more of the cancer. This is kind of a dark start. <laughs> this is a dark start. Today. Well, it's in honor of Pluto. Yeah. The god of death, the underworld. Boy, you know, I think, you know, so on on Twitter, you know, occasionally people will follow me maybe because they like the show. Yeah. And inevitably, I find the more I tweet, the more people unfollow me. <laughs> I don't know. If, this isn't how it's supposed to work. But That's my secret to having followers is never tweeting. Never tweet? Never. Isn't that a Seinfeld episode? Never tweet? <laughs> isn't that, I don't know. But um, 
yeah, because I, I, I usually retweet like science and space yeah. stuff, and I'm Very interested cool. in this stuff, and, right. and and you know, and but I've been retweeting lately some stuff by John Pfaff, mm. who's uh, really been in the news. He was on BBC uh, World News Service it's about on the, the news hour. Uh, pr- the prison reform issues that have been in the, the sentencing reform and prison reform. Yeah, because right? Obama's gotten very serious in the right. last week about um, visited a federal prison in Oklahoma, right, and. And listeners to this show will know. I thought that episode with John was was terrific. That it was very good. It, was it really flew by. I mean, I felt like it was too short. We could have. Mm-hmm. We could have. In fact, we should have him back on because it just. Right. It's very th- and there's there are sort of separate issues about. Um, we talked with him a lot about uh, drug offenses and what's causing the sort of very high levels of incarceration. The incarceration crisis. Uh, right. Yeah. But we didn't. We didn't sort of get at sentencing per se we talked my recollection of our conversation with him was we talked more about the role of uh prosecutors in simply charging lots more felonies well that was his um, that's his working hypothesis but what are the sentences one? that yeah. are imposed and you know mandatory minimums versus in fact we got some listener feedback about that question of mandatory minimums yeah we'll get to that um, in a minute yeah but but there's all these interweaving things that and we didn't really get I felt like we didn't get a chance to talk with him about the sentencing layer of that issue. Like yeah. even if you even if you kept the number of people coming in constant, if you're sentencing them differently, the effects of maybe we did talk about yeah, a now, little bit see, at the yeah, end. I thought, I thought we did, but but now sort of the water not, coming in the tub and the water going out yeah, of the yeah, tub. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. We talked a little bit, very little about it. I would like to talk the to central, him more. The central point there, and and I think the central point of of John's current current work is to try to explain you know, the mass incarceration, like what's causing it? Is right. it the uh, admissions into the system? Is it how long they're staying in the system? Is it the types of charges? Is it what, you know, what, what explains it? Is it the mandatory minimums? And his best guess, right, is that it is not the war on drugs, at least per se, right? I mean, there may be some right. connection. It, it's not uh, longer sentences. It is prosecutorial decisions to charge things as felonies that you know, it's it, there. There are greater rate of there's a greater rate of admissions, despite the fact that violence is on the decline. Right. And so, if you want to get a handle on this, like, and even if you emptied out the federal prisons entirely, we would still have an incarceration crisis because of state prisons. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you emptied out all the non uh, all the nonviolent drug offenders from state and federal prisons, You'd we would still, still have... have the incarceration crisis. So yeah. it's it's really violent offenders, and and part of and. You know, even though violence is going down, more violent offenses are being charged as felonies. Right. And so part of what he's talking about is that we need to focus on this problem. If we want to solve the incarceration crisis, we need to figure out, like, do all of those need to be charged as felonies? And I think part of it is rhetorical in, in the sense that we call them violent. Who's going to be saying, yeah, we need to let violent offenders out of jail, right? Because that word right. violent is applied to the word offender and offender is like – it describes the person and so now violent describes the person and then that makes people more reluctant to want them out of uh, – to, right. to want to let them out of jail. But So maybe we need more nuanced terminology because not everyone who's classified as a violent offender is violent in a scary way. You know what I mean? So that word violent seems to be driving a lot of the rhetoric. Like who should we let out of prison? Nonviolent offenders. Well, it's very, and right? it's very uh, – because it's stated at a very high level of generality, that might be one of its, one of its problems. If you, if you tell me uh, – and, and I don't mean to sort of say the only way to think about these things is using the, sort of the common law crime categories. But if you tell me, um, you know, this person um, raped somebody, this person um, – battered somebody this person uh, murdered somebody this right. person um 
stole a car. Uh, this person not only stole a car, they stole a car while the person who owns it was in it. And they grabbed them, threw them out of the car, it's and stole different. the car. Yeah, yeah. Right? These are all different things. The last two aren't the sort of common law violent felony categories. A rape means something in particular. A murder means something in particular. But there are other things that, you know, this person robbed a bank. Yeah. Um, and pretended they had a gun, even though they didn't. Right? Right. Um, my guess is that's categorized as a crime of violence. And I think there are even some good reasons why it might be, given the way people will react to that crime while it's in process and have the likelihood that somebody will get hurt physically. Um, but yeah, you're, you're, when you just use the phrase violent crime, that's, that captures an awful lot of stuff. Yeah. Which varies dramatically within the category. Yeah, it does. And, and that's, that's the question, you know, I don't know, I don't have my fingertips at all, the research or the categorizations, but it'd be a reason to have John back on. And yes. we'll put in the show notes a link and, to John's, uh, I think, I, hopefully I'll be able to find his appearance. And, on, and or Doug Berman, who, who, although yeah. we talked about marijuana stuff with, he's he also, a I mean, he's log. a sentencing law expert. Yeah. So it'd be great to have him back on too. Um, we already talked about Pluto. I guess we didn't, right? I mean, we started to, and we got off on John Pfaff because I've been retweeting I feel like this is the week of John Pfaff and of Pluto. Yes. Yeah. And and how amazing, though. Yeah, I'm not going to start talking about it. I could turn this into the, this could be the space podcast because oh. I'm so into it. You know, I just, it's. So without, <sighs> let's not, let's not do that. Okay. Um, okay. You have a, you have another proposal? But I am, but I do. Well, I just want to hear you try to sum up in a sentence or two, Max, mm-hmm. what, wh- why it is that this, what it is in you. Okay. That you feel that the space exploration events of the last year, why they have, have spoken so much to you in this moment. Like, where you are in your life, the things that have been going on in the last year with these space events, the, right. the, the, um, the asteroid. The comet. Photograph. The comet, excuse me. The comet photographs, Pluto. What, what is it? Sum it up in a sentence or two. What is it about for you? Is it I about think sc- when, discovery? Is it about uh, I am just a, the I'm majesty emo- of nature? I am emotionally attracted to discovery and the majesty of nature. Yes, th- that's true. I think, you know, one way of thinking about it is, for me, is that seeing pictures of another world and uh, other worlds and hearing about them is a way to experience emotionally this thing which is really easy to appreciate intellectually, but so also so easy to lose track of. As, you know, like the, the the vastness of the universe, mm. our place in the universe, right? It's just so, th- we talked about this a long time ago, I think on that show about the um, Atlanta snowstorm. Remember when they got, you remember this one? I don't remember that we talked about it. No. Yeah, we talked, this is when the the, uh, the snowstorm came and the whole city was shut down, right? And people couldn't pick up their kids. Mm-hmm. You remember that? Yes. And we, start, and, and we had a little discussion about the role of, I think, wilderness in particular as in terms of like emotionally breaking down that sense of abstraction that we always have, like that our, our lives are very abstract. Like our, you know, if you think about, well, how do I get from my house to Joe's house, right? We think in terms, we don't think in, about like trails and landscapes and particular right. trees and geographic forms. It's, it's these, it's streets, right? And these streets are very abstract, right? And this is how we get our food from the grocery store. So we talked about this on that, on that yeah. show, right? That our lives are, 
And it's these layers of systems that have been layered onto these stuff. And every once in a while, you get brought back down through all the layers. And I think it's right. And and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have these layers. I think abstraction is what allows us cheaply to navigate a complex society. And complexity has all kinds of advantages, right? And uh, you know, this is part of my more general theory of law, right? That that in order to have that complexity, you have to have an abstract system, Mm. right? That's the only way of managing uh, that kind of complexity. But I think for human beings, it's really important to be reminded every now and then that uh, whatever reality is, um, it consists at the level of rocks and pebbles and bits of sand and quarks and molecules, right? That breaking down through that, it's 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 important to be confronted with that emotionally. It's why I like climbing mountains. It's and why space, I like hiking. Space exploration with these new things that it that we find and see are a way to break down back into that more basic yeah experience. it's a, and especially like the extraplanetary i mean the the you know the um, but undersea stuff must strike you the same way then because it hasn't as much but it should it hasn't as much but because on our planet it's the it is the most undiscovered stuff that still remains yeah in a way. well you know the the comet that rosetta is exploring and i can't remember the name of the comet i my memory's shot, but uh, you, you know the one that the the Philae lander went down on yeah. and they lost track of, and these and beautiful pictures. On, in fact, right? I posted one of the pictures on my blog. Didn't it I turn think. back on? The it land? did yeah. for a little bit, and it's quite. I think you know as it got closer to the sun and is heating up more, it's, oh, cool. it, it can operate at the temperature without using its power. So anyway, maybe we'll hear more from it. But the amazing thing about that picture, those pictures from that, it, were, were these landscapes where you were able to see like things that look kind of like boulders resting on the surface of this comet Mm -hmm. but the surface of this comet is like really irregular and so you know it's a small you see gravity in a new way because you can see things which are resting on the surface but pointing in opposite directions in space you know so something looks like it should be falling down but in fact it's being pulled toward the center of mass of the right of of the object And, and and that just it's the same reason you know didn't i tell you about this did you watch this movie with me um uh uh leviathan no. Did I mention this to you? This is the one that was shot on a um, on. Uh, I remember you telling me about it, but I did not we talk see about it on the show. It's a it's a uh, ocean vessel. Yeah, it's an ocean vessel, and there's a documentary about a fishing vessel in the Northeast, right? And it may be more than one fishing vessel, and it is a uh, a real experience um, because you they linger on these shots for a long time of the same thing happening, and it's very disorienting because you know the camera will follow a net as it's thrust down into the water and as it comes back out again and your sense of up and down changes and you, you, you surface and there are these seagulls flying all around and then it goes back down and, and the grain of the film is such that everything is like disorienting mm. and, and it'll just linger on shots of like people doing things, but it, it does so in a way that makes all of the humans seem not us, you know, you can identify with them, but you see things more from the perspective of, the sea or other things. It's it, not in a, not in a hippy dippy, like, you know, man is the evil force here. Just you, the people are depicted as no more or less important than anything else in a way. Right. And, and in the closing, in some of the closing shots, the camera is turning in such a way that the seagulls appear to be flying upside down and the water is at the top of the picture. Whoa. And it somehow feels right. Like it's the it's it's a shot that made me think. And I don't know what their intention was. That made me see. Yeah, you know, this is it's just gravity. It's like arbitrary. Like they're just like you know what I mean. It, it, it's it's uh, um, 
my 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 kind of constant conception about what up and and down are right uh this uh understanding is based on all these other assumptions that i have about the world and it can be you know when you see it in this new way you see right that up is and down just are in reference to the earth itself and seeing these seagulls flying upside down somehow like brought this like intellectual truth which is easy to apprehend Mm -hmm. right home emotionally like you feel it and how often does that happen right and so when i see pictures from pluto and i see these uh 10,000 foot mountains of, of ice that I don't know whether they look like crystalline glass or not, or what they look like, or I see this 20,000 foot Canyon on, uh, on, on Charon and you can see the little notch where you can see through the moon Mm -hmm. into space. Um, I think first of all, how cool I would love to, I imagine myself visiting and I think it's so awesome, (laughs) but, but also I think, wow, you know, uh, how many, you know, around, we know now that around almost all stars, there are a number of planets, Right. right? And it, just the vastness of it is unfathomable, unfathomable. And I, I think that's, you know, you, that you, appre- you appreciate that emotionally when you see something like that in a to way me, that you don't intellectually. It's funny. The vastness, know, is this what they tune in for? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> okay. I think the vastness, to me, it's funny. It's inverted. What's striking to me is that is the specificity of it. Right. Like the particularity of it. Right. It's vast, but there's actually, you know, in that place in space, right? If you go to that location, there's a thing there right now, which is happening right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it might take us however long to see it, assuming that our uh, machine is flying by in the right moment and mm-hmm. captures it photographically. But there's a little fleck of stuff that, if you were standing right there, you would see it. Right, you could reach out and touch it. Yeah. It's just as specific as everything else. You get this in a small way when you travel and you get off an airplane in, in China or, or somewhere else uh, and people are kind of just, things are happening like they do every day there. Right. And yet for you, it's very exotic, right? It's the, the vastness isn't emptiness. Yeah. It's right. It's fullness. Right. Well, at least when you're on planetary bodies, it's fullness. <laughs> it's not, I mean, there is a lot of, there is a lot of unoccupied Space, a lot of space in between. There's but, a lot of space, yeah. But but it's still it just is that's what is striking about it to me. Yeah. Is that there it it has all the hyper specificity and concreteness of of walking out your door. Right. Yeah, and they're not they're not all the same. It's not like every other body but the earth looks like the moon. No. Right? There's a bunch of rocks with craters. They all have right. different stories. Uh you know, many of them have similar origin stories, but they have you know, separated in time as different things have happened. So just out there in, in the Kuiper, Kuiper belt, right? Uh, there are hundreds, I don't know how many, I forget how many, I've looked it up recently, how many objects there are that are, you know, not Pluto size, but almost, there are a bunch of objects out there. A lot of them we, you know, so anyway, I don't know. I, is this what people tune in for? Kind of amazing. I'm worried. Yeah. You're worried about what? I don't know. You know, people think they're getting one thing, they're getting another. Are you here? I am. Am I here? I, I think so. I'm calling it bueno. Okay. Well, so today it's just you and me, Joe. Indeed. And we were going to talk about feedback today. Yeah, we got, we've got That's a lot on of our feed- agenda. And, and so, you know, one of the first items of feedback is we asked people not too long ago, you know, what do you, do you like the shows with the guests? Do you like them with just Joe and me? And, yeah. and, and, and how do you, and we got a lot of diversity of opinion about that. That's wouldn't true. you say? I mean, some people 
are like, you know, I, the two of you have great chemistry. There are some examples in here. One of our listeners in, in Norway said we were like a power chord. Did you like that? I did. That was great. <laughs> and then the guests can be like uh, uh, dissonances or harmonies in various ways. That right. was totally cool. We were the major fifth and the guests were the thirds, <laughs> I think. Minor thirds, um, major thirds. Yeah. And, and other people are like, yeah, you guys have to have guests because without guests, it's just, you know, you wander off and... <laughs> Uh, so, you know, there's a big diversity of opinion, but if I were to, if I were to extract one kind of commonality from all this, it's that, um, even the shows where it's just you and me can be good for the people who normally, if they're a little bit focused. Okay. Right. So we've done shows, you know, with our favorite cases. I thought those were some of our best shows. Yeah, they were great. uh, They were great fun. Yeah. we're, We're, um, you know, I talked about Plessy versus Ferguson uh, you talked about uh, Caroline Products and um, what's and uh, Erie, mm-hmm. right? And we did a show where we kind of I don't know we critique just uh, Judge Sutton's opinion in the, the Obergefell, six, yeah. Okay, so th- those are good. Those those are just you and me, but we had a point, right? Other yeah. ones we've kind of just wandered around. I like those shows too, but not everybody does. So this I thought as we go through viewer mail here. Mm. Um, there, I saw some themes develop, so I think this will be a somewhat focused show, even oh. though we go over these, uh, we're going over kind of a lot of feedback, wouldn't you say? Yeah, we have received a lot of emails in the last few weeks. We haven't had an opportunity to talk about them during our episodes for various reasons. Um, and so we did want to have a conversation where we took the opportunity because we love to hear from folks. It's so great, isn't it? And we also want to convey to the people who write to us that we do think about what they say. We do think about the questions they pose and the issues they highlight and, and a great way to show that is to talk about it. Yeah. Even if we can't get to everything, but we're going to get to a lot. Yeah. Where should we start? You well, start? I, one thing we just need to get on because okay, we've already we mentioned yeah. um, Oslo, Anthony, with respect to um, power chords and the major fifth. Um, we should congratulate him. He's he has received an academic appointment, and just as fellow academicians, we should simply extend him our hearty congratulations. Yeah. Don't you think? Oh, ab- absolutely. It's been. It looks like it's been a a, a long journey for him, and he's got a. Uh, a it looks like a tenure track appointment, and um, I'm loving that. Uh, I, he sent us some pictures too of a trip yeah. that he took to a trip to Scotland, Scotland, or... where he visited. Um, was it was it where they made? I'm looking at the pictures now, but I don't want to. Uh, it's a from a 19th century pub. Uh, he sent us yeah. a picture of a Talisker barrel. Yeah, but that's of course we know that's made on the Isle of Skye. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, the 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 whiskey that he mentioned obtaining was uh, Edredor, which uh, is I don't think that's made where he is uh, on that trip. But in any event, um, and he sent us a picture of it. it. Looks wonderful. Send us your whiskey recommendations, <laughs> listeners. Yeah, we uh, haven't tried Edredor yet. But I'm going to look for it. Well, he says that he'll pour some for us if we make it to Oslo. Yeah, which is a great reason to go. I think it's a reason to start a Kickstarter. Send Joe and Christian to Oslo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ah. It's Yeah, so congratulations, uh, listener Anthony. It was really great to hear. So, And if you're a listener who's had successes or struggles or failures or things you can think people will learn, feel free to share that with us. Absolutely. Um, uh, I. It's great to hear, to hear from someone who's been corresponding with us and listening to the show and, and has you know, achieve something uh, Oral really great. Argument podcast at gmail.com. At gmail.com. All right. So let's go back now to oh. uh, listener Amble. Mm-hmm. We're talking a about couple the... emails. One was 
early in the summer that we didn't get to where he was at saying, you know what, you know, what should we do over the summer? Like, what are you doing for pleasure in terms of like TV shows and reading and, stuff too, and reading right? and yeah, but no cases. And, um, and of course now we're just getting to the email and summer's almost over. For <laughs> <laughs> almost over. Well, it's mid, it's, it's late July. I guess school starts in like four weeks or five weeks, right? It's, yeah. It's, it's coming up. It's alarmingly close. It's a, yeah. Alarmingly. Uh, so do we have any suggestions in that front? Let, <laughs> let's let, let's put that on hold and let's get to his uh, substantive feedback, which was about the Church of um, the Church of Cannabis. Yes, he, he it was a listener who sent. Um, I don't know if he's one of the listeners or maybe the only one who sent us the link to a New York Times article the about the one. the Church of uh, is it the Church of Marijuana or the Church of Cannabis? I think it's I don't called know. the Church of Marijuana. This was a New York Times story about a group of folks uh, starting a church. Uh, the Church of Marijuana, uh, in Indiana, it, it seems like it's in part to designed to test the limits of or test the concepts of the Indiana Religious Freedom Restoration Act, like the state law version of the federal RIFRA. This is an Indiana RIFRA, the one that originally wrapped Mike Pence around the axle when it was a, a you know, hey, it's okay to discriminate against gay people. Um, then the legislature quickly changed it, uh, but it's still... this. State RIFRAs, religious liberty, this is a huge thing the country is tying itself yeah, up. And it's a huge conceptual over. problem that we've had more than one show about. I mean, we have. Because the general it, problem is you pass laws. You know, we have laws. We're a society of laws. Right. And then we have this principle about this thing called religion, which if people adhere to it, can be used as a set of reasons to be exempted from otherwise applicable laws. and. Right. And then we're trying to hold the state yeah. in between. We, we, we want the state neither to establish, uh, this is in the U.S., we want the state neither to establish a particular faith um, as the official religion of the government, um, nor do we want the government to unnecessarily interfere with the people's f- religious conscience, the free exercise of their, of their own religious faith, yeah. uh, including no faith. So, um, you know, holding this, holding the government in between these two positions, um, admitting at the same time that when you pass general laws, it will have consequences that bear on different citizens differently. Right. Because some of them will have a religious faith and an observance that is affected by that rule or law, and some won't. But that's got nothing to do with uh, religion in particular, because all laws affect people in different ways, well, depending on where they are. I- indeed, right? but but the the uh, that that gets to the question: Why have we called out this particular um, uh, freedom yeah. for special dispensation, which the Constitution obviously does? So, yeah, we um, started talking about this early on in the run of the show. I think didn't I say that that uh, I wanted to establish the Church of the Lead Foot? Do you remember that episode? <laughs> This was relates to speed trap law. Yeah, I think it, yeah, this was a connection between speed trap law and religious exemptions. But let, right. let me. Uh, so one, you know, <laughs> so this guy uh, who runs this church, who I guess is introduced as the quote unquote Grand Poobah. Mm. That's the official name for the leader. I know. Of this church. I know the name of the only nun that is associated with this faith. What Mary Jane? <laughs> well, they finish the gathering with a simple message: "Light up, folks." <laughs> And, uh, and, th- and apparently they interviewed someone uh, named Sherry Logan, who then identifies 46 years old. Okay. Crucial bit of information, I guess. Yeah, uh, it's, you know, details. They oh, interviewed okay. her and she said, what's next? The church of crack, the church of heroin. It's a mockery to Christians, to God. And thereby like 
I think, in, in you know, incorporating into one quote all the problems with this area. <laughs> <laughs> Say more. But, what both do you in, mean? Both, well, I mean, she's right. What's next? Like, how far does this extend? In that sense, she's right. But her reasons for thinking it's a mockery or, or, or reasons for thinking it's problematic are that this really is about God and Christians. Mm. And they're making a mockery of it by, you know, you know, this is for us, not for them. Right. Yeah. So the us versus them thing. All right. Well, so we've had shows about this. So I don't think we need to belabor it other than this is an interesting example of what we've, we've done. We, we should surely do more. And the, and the other uh, manifestation of this uh, particular knot of challenges is that uh, in the wake of the marriage equality ruling, both at the state level and at the national level, there are various legislative proposals that go to this question of, you know, how do you need to adjust, if at all, how do you need to adjust the law to uh, permit people who have a religious objection to marriage equality uh, to be in the world differently from people who have no such objection to it? Um, And both the Congress, the national legislature, and state legislatures are going to be grappling with that. Yeah, we'll talk more about it. I mean, I think there's a lot. There's a lot to go into in in depth. There about is. I'm just per- saying that's yeah. a that's a yeah. that over the next year or two, that's going to be, I, I think, a constant in the in the in the press. Yeah. People will see stories about the fact that because it's going to continue to challenge legislators, executive officials, right. citizens. So stay tuned. I mean, this is one of those issues which is both in the news and I think ripe for discussion on this show. Yes. I mean, we don't. Not everything which is hot in terms of legal news is, is interesting to us. Right. Uh, but this is one of those issues because it has to do with kind of separation of the public and private sphere. It mm-hmm. has to do with why to privilege certain kinds of reasons and motivations over other reasons and motivation. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting angles. On yeah, this. Very so rich. We will come back to it. Let me go to the next one. This is um, uh, from listener Russell. Listener Russell is the listener who first alerted us to the fact that funny business is indeed allowed in, oh, in, email in, 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 in Gmail addresses. Gmail, as long as it's left of the app. Yeah, you can put as many dots as you want left of the app, and apparently it doesn't matter. So you could do O dot, R dot, A dot, and then finish oral argument at uh, podcast at gmail.com. But, right. um, it, so that kind of complicates our no funny business injunction uh, to listeners. So, so anyway, he gets back to us. And so he was listening. This is about our, um, show with, uh, Kareem Creighton. Yeah. Uh, about, um, basically racism and the voting rights act. And he says that, uh, we, we brought up this hypothetical on that show about, uh, you know, what happens if we know for sure that the reasons for the appointment of an individual are racist? Maybe there's a discussion, maybe the city count to take it out of the kind of, um, uh, national politics um, realm for a second. So suppose the city council appoints a member of the planning commission or something like that, or, or some other official. And the discussion indicates that the reasons that, or privately they indicate, I mean, I, maybe it makes a difference, but the reasons for that appointment are traditionally racist. Uh, what do you do with that appointment, which in and of itself doesn't have a, a, a racist effect? And, you know, it's at one level, it sounds like an outrageous hypothetical, but at another level, maybe it's a, quite a bit less outrageous. So, for example, uh, uh, another thing that's been going on socially, culturally, in the news, et cetera, uh, is uh, questioning uh, the continued uh, existence of monuments to figures from the Confederate period of the southern United States. So, 
war of treason in defense of slavery. And uh, let's assume that in some southern jurisdiction, a person were appointed to a planning commission. You mentioned a planning commission. Let's yeah. assume. Um, and and the explanation for why this appointee is the appropriate appointee is because as a white supremacist and Klan member, you know this person will reliably oppose the removal of any Confederate monuments. Right. And that's a that's a view you have as the appointing official. Uh, and so you want that view to be represented in the planning commission. And that's what you say publicly. That, to me, I mean, other people might think that's hard to imagine. I personally don't find that the least bit hard to imagine. Yeah, I mean, the selection of reliable appointees has been is infected with all the kinds of, you know, reasons, good and bad, that we use to make all kinds of other decisions, right? right. So the, the reasoning behind the decision— just saying in current affairs, things going on right now— Yeah. Suggests this is a far from a foolish, yeah, hypothetical. So we had trouble, you know, thinking about how a court would 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 approach this, right? Because it's a difficult because you'd have to look into people's motivations, and and that might be difficult. And there's not an obvious racially discriminatory effect of a, the mere appointment of somebody. Uh, it's going to be the secondary effects of that appointment, right? So we were kind of struggling with that uh, on the episode with with Kareem. And Russell writes, it seems to me that one reason why the courts would be reluctant to intervene in that case is not just that it would be extremely difficult to fashion a judicially administrable standard for such cases, but that the courts would still have the opportunity to police the appointee's actions. And then Russell goes on to uh, say, you know, how courts would still review reasons for decisions and, and how the discretion of appointees is not unfettered. And um, uh, so, you know, maybe we don't have to worry so much about the appointment of a person for racist reasons when you can police that official for the things they do. Right. So maybe if you're worried that uh, maybe to take your example, if that person was appointed because of a reliably white supremacist views. Right. Then maybe we don't worry about the appointment for that reason, because we can watch like a hawk that official once they're in the position and 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 evaluate their uh, actions in that uh, in, in that position for you know um, I I think that this is uh, so my problem I guess is twofold with with Russell's suggestion one is that uh, there's always going to be deference and it's going to be very hard to know um, especially to, to distinguish between a racially discriminatory purpose yeah. and something which is benign but has downstream but difficult to trace racially discriminatory effects. The, right. the subtle favoring of one community over another sort of thing. And, That's and one the, reason. And I those think. two issues step over the fact that they're, that what do you do when you know the motive to be mixed? Right. Which is something courts struggle with in, for example, employment law all the time. Right. So you just posited you may not know the motive. Right. And you also posited, well, putting motive aside – what are the effects? Yeah. And we've got, what do you do when you know the motive and you know, it's mixed, there are perfectly good lawful reasons to, to do what the person did and some odious and unlawful reasons to do what the person did. And you can't tease the two apart. Well, if they actually had those odious reasons and there's evidence they had those odious reasons, I think, you know, usually at least when it comes to race, the courts won't have much trouble. The problem is how deeply they look for those reasons, whether they infer those reasons. Right. There will be some areas in which uh, discriminatory impact type analysis where you don't look at reasons, you just uh, you look at the impact sure. will be enough, but not for all laws. So it can be complicated, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm a little concerned that we can't always police those downstream effects right. to have the same. That was one. The other one is that I just think that there is um, a separate wrong 
in appointing someone for racist reasons, right? Even if they take they even if they don't take any racist right. actions in the future, right? Yep. That that's that's not a society that I want. I think a society that chooses people for those kinds of reasons is one which is worse than a society that that doesn't have such reasons for appointments, right? There's an us versus them attitude in the appointment that I think is inimical to uh, to democracy and to uh, a pluralistic society. And, I, and so I, have, I would have a problem with it even if I knew for sure that the person appointed for racist reasons would not take any future actions for racist reasons and would, and would even avoid taking actions which had racially discriminatory impacts. Yeah. Uh, it sort of pours battery acid in the body politic to make that the reason why someone was better than, than another candidate for the job. Yeah. And one way to crystallize it would be assuming they take a conventional oath as a person who's going to hold a public office. Um, the oath is going to be a lie. Yeah. Right. Because the, the person's committed to something the constitution itself is set its face against, or at least it's understood to have done. So the, the, because they're, they're, they're proceeding from a posture of inequality, that's what made them attractive. But that's contrary to the very foundation of the civil I mean, society. So one of the difficulties here is that it can be impossible to know people's deepest motivations. And I get that. Like, we're never going to be able to detect right. all this stuff. Even and, to themselves. It and can we be. probably don't want a rule which <laughs> unleashes courts and like a reading through private diaries. And, you know, I mean, well, of course not. Right. So, but. There's a value. There are trade-offs. If people have those kinds of reasons, there's probably a value in having a set of laws which say, you know what, keep it to yourself. Because if we find out about it, if you make it obvious enough, we're going to, the court will step in, right? Because then maybe over time, those things will die off if other things in society don't reinforce a, a norm right. of hierarchies. Yeah. So it, it, anyway, a lot more to be said here. I'd love some more uh, feedback on that. You know, he, Russell also said uh, that we, we ought to be doing CLEs. <laughs> He did which, say that. Which we will be. We That's will be true recording our, our, our we will be recording our podcast live in Atlanta. Yes. More on that later though. Mm. More on that later as part of a something for which you could get CLEs. That is gonna be fun. Uh yeah. So um stay tuned, stay tuned on that front. So that we got a, a few emails about people who are in school and either thinking about law school or or in school and thinking about something else which is related to law. The first is uh, listener Jeff, who it comes to us from Northeast Ohio, and then in parentheses, just a bit south and east of North Dakota. <laughs> Not a state's name we celebrate here at Oral Argument Headquarters. The latest I, I saw, Joe, I think we now have two downloads in the history of the podcast from North Dakota. Mm. I, I think we have far more from, um, I think, um, Burma. I think. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, go, I go through. We do have a lot of international downloads. and. North Dakota is not well represented, but we, I think we now have two for the, you know, right when we had one, we highlighted that right. and we celebrated that fact. So what I can still we hold do to reach out to the good people of North Dakota? I think we need to travel there and have a live podcast from the place next to the Fargo exhibit. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Moorhead, right? The, the great, is it the Twin City? Moorhead, the great border I town? Guess. I'll bring my, I'll bring my apron so we don't get splashed by the wood chipper. <laughs> There's longtime listeners will remember that. <laughs> That another we we'd heard from another listener that there is the Fargo wood chipper exhibit um, there. So so um, sweet. Uh, so so uh, listener Jeff writes that he's an undergraduate at the uh, University of Akron, and there uh, the state of Ohio had said for two years the state universities can't increase their tuition rates. So there's a law saying they can't increase their tuition right. rates, um, and the University of Akron 
then imposed a $50 per credit hour uh, fee on certain courses. And he says 300 and 400 level courses. Meaning and, for juniors and seniors. Yeah. Um, or, or, you know, you don't have to, whatever. But they're junior and senior Generally classes. Generally for juniors and yeah, seniors, yeah. right. Which he notes is a 12% increase. So there's a there's basically a fee now attached to certain classes. Uh, they said it was for the higher cost of, quote unquote, course delivery. Uh, the Ohio Board of Regents said that while they have no authority over fees, the legislature and governor, quote, will be watching this very closely. And Jeff says, I don't get the sense that anything is going to be done about this. My question is, what's the legal definition of, quote, unquote, tuition? I haven't had any luck with finding this out. And can it really be that easy to ignore the intent of the law by crafting fees in unique ways? What, now, what did you think of when you, when you got this email? Uh, before I answer that, let me say that uh, I, I was interested to just make sure I understood what he was saying about the facts. And I, and, um, it, I can't, in, my, in searching around, I, one of the things I came across was, uh, was an editorial from the Cleveland Plain Dealer just a few days ago, sort of yeah. editorializing against right. this move on the part of the University of Akron. Uh, so, so the first thing I thought when I when I read it was, um, <laughs> it's sort of I feel bad that I it made me laugh um, about the the sort of devilishly uh, clever but perhaps too clever by half uh, move of the University of Akron uh, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, then I started because I'm a lawyer. I started instantly thinking, oh yeah, you know how would you define tuition? Uh, it's probably not specially defined in the in the legislation in question. It might be. It might be. You'd want to look, yeah, right? But yeah. assuming it weren't, let's just let's be clear. We haven't done the research here, right? Right. Because <laughs> right. we need to go look at this Ohio budget. Apparently, it's part of a budget act. Yeah. So yeah, it's a two year yeah. budget cycle, and they as their most recent budget act. They might even have a separate dictionary act that uh, that covers they might. things like that. Um, we don't know. We don't know what the we don't know. Is. But yeah. but but even if they have a dictionary act. The likelihood that it defines the word tuition, I think, is is fairly low. Um, so, what what will a court do if a court if someone were actually to, to litigate this, for example, right? like or if listener Jeff, or if listener Jeff could become plaintiff Jeff, sure. <laughs> or if you're, or if you're, um, let's say you're the board of regents and you ask the general counsel of the board of regents to give you an opinion letter about what do you think of the University of Akron's evidence? So, what is that lawyer going to do? Yeah. Um, or someone in the governor's office or whatever, right? They're going to think, well, you know, how do courts usually interpret words that aren't specially defined in a statute? What they usually do is they usually say, well, you know, legislatures typically mean the ordinary meaning. They use that phrase a lot, ordinary meaning. Um, and and what is tuition? Well, tuition is the money you pay to attend the school. Right? To attend the school. And it's the money you pay regardless of how much or little you use the facilities for that school, right? So um, you probably pay the same tuition whether you're taking four courses a semester or six. No. Not sure, I'd have to go look. No, I, that's, not, that's not true at every school. Not at every school. I'm just saying, generally speaking, what's tuition? Tuition is your, your sort of the basic fee you pay to go. Then there's room and board if you're a residential student at the college or university. A, a lot right? of places car- charge per credit hour, though. In addition, a lot of places do charge separately above and beyond per credit hour. And lab fees. In addition to that. Right. So in other words, there's all kinds of ways that universities structure what they charge. And this was true long before Ohio passed this statute. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And so what I would want to know is what is the legislature's one way to tackle this would be 
what is the legislature's awareness of the different ways universities in that are part of the Ohio State University system, mm -hmm. right? How did they, how were they doing things before this got enacted? Right. Were, was it common for them to have a base fee that was called tuition and then a separate set of charges on a per credit hour basis or something like that? If yeah. so, let's imagine that's the case, what I just described. Well, then the fact that the University of Akron has developed an additional fee to me actually does not sound like it runs afoul of the statute. Well, here's so what I liked about this email is that, you know, because uh, unlike all the things I've just said, which you're going to ignore. No, I'm not going to ignore. I, I think I, I want to put them in context for listener Jeff, because one one of the things that he says is that he doesn't always understand the legalese. Right. He's not a lawyer. He's an undergrad. Yeah. Uh, who's just likes. He says he fully understands the sarcasm, by yeah. the way. I didn't show. use I didn't use any legalese. No, no. But but what I want. But what I like about the email is that he has he has grasped on as he's thinking about this issue to the core issue of statutory interpretation yeah. and is seeing that point you could do it this way, but you could also do it this other way. Can you really, um, uh, can it, he says, can it really be that easy to ignore the intent of the law by crafting fees in unique ways? Right. And, um, it, there's this idea of intention. There's this idea of definition. And so right. just to be, you know, for listener Jeff and others, I mean, the classic, I, I don't know the classic because that classic is a different thing, but uh, a modern view of statutory interpretation would, would identify three main schools, textualism, intentionalism, and purposivism, right? And under textualism, man, there, there are different kinds of textualism that you might do. But one thing you might do is get out a dictionary and look up the word tuition right. and ask, and and then ask yourself, does this meet that dictionary definition? Now, you might ask, like, how did the dictionary get to be a law unto itself, right? <laughs> and, and how do we solve the problem of not understanding words by adding more words? Right. Because each of those words can be ambiguous. These are some of the problems with textualism, and they're solved in various ways, or, or there are solutions proposed in various ways to this. So one thing you might do is, is again, get out a dictionary, look up tuition, figure out whether it covers, as, as you said, like, you know, all of the fees you typically pay? Does it include the idea that it can be variable? Does it, and I don't know, I, I, I haven't pulled up uh, the definition of tuition you know, here on my computer, but um, but that's one thing you might do. You might sure. also look at intentionalism and you might look at, and for that, you might consult the legislative history. You might see like, what were they talking about when they did this? Were sure. they try, you know, and, and is what Akron is doing consistent with that intention that we've inferred not only from the text of the statute itself, but from everything surrounding that enactment? Because what we're trying to do is give effect to what they meant to do. That's intentionalism. And let me just ask you a yeah. clarifying question. So when you when you when you use this word intentionalism, the the evidence you went to was uh, utterances in the legislature itself as right. it's contemplating taking the step we're now trying to understand. Right. Okay. That, that's one way you might do it. You also might say, you know what? I'm an intentionalist because I care about what the legislature intended, but I think that kind of stuff is really misleading. And so I'm going to restrict myself to a, to a certain range of data to infer intent because everything else will get me away from that, right? And so, and I'm in fact, the, the words that – to go back to textualism, one thing a textualist might say is that the best evidence of what they intended is the words they chose to enact. And – but but then you'd be an intentionalist, right? And you would use the text as the best evidence of intent. Whereas, you true. Know, so a way to tease that Just out. Just saying is, these things. There, right. If you were looking at Venn diagrams, the, there are yeah. some overlapping. There's some overlap, here. and there's some overlap with purposivism too, where you Indeed. try to figure out like what is the. And there are many different ways of doing this, but like not what was their intention with respect to the outcome of any particular case or their intention as to the semantic interpretation of a particular word, but what was their purpose in passing this statute or 
what is an objective purpose of a statute like this one? So there are different ways of seeing how you might be right. a purposivist and care about the purpose of a statute. Right. It could be original purposivism. It could be something else, right? It could be dynamic interpretation um, that Eskridge is famous for, Calabresi. So there are many different ways you can do it. And, and under that, I think I think the way what you described in your in original analysis here, Joe, was kind of a purposivism. You'd kind of want to know what the environment was um, preceding the enactment here. What were, what was trying to be accomplished? Why would they use these words? Right. Right. And you cared a little bit about original intention, but only because you're trying to carry out the purpose of this statute. Do I have that and right? And context illuminates purpose. Pre-existing context helps you understand what it was the legislature was about. Now, I suspect that if you, if you look at purpose in a, in a more general, at, at a more general level, here um you you could express dismay as follows right um clearly the main goal the legislature had is preventing these tuition hikes because they have a concern about the affordability of college yeah and so a university to respond to that by raising fees in some other place impairs the very affordability the legislature was trying to enhance right so it just seems very from the from that sort of however you want thirty thousand foot level right right without getting into the meaning of the word tuition or fee or any of that right. jazz right yeah, yeah. Um, this looks pretty bad it, it might be I mean again we'd want to look more but right and it may even be that certain kinds of scholarships could be used for tuition but not for fees and so this action might actually be not only kind of ignoring uh, what the legislature that legislative purpose that you've identified but actually antithetical to it right because it actually makes college even less affordable because they're not just like raising fees in a way that they would have raised tuition but they've now raised the cost of college in a way that maybe some scholarships won't cover mm. right i mean right. I, I don't know i'm just kind of throwing out ideas about how but you know we've got a bunch of clashing interacting institutions yep. here and uh, and I think, a lot of different contextual questions about what was going on in ohio mm-hmm. and with some with some granularity right i mean what in state-supported universities in Ohio, what what is this thing people use the word tuition for? Right. What is this thing people use the word fee for? And to like what it ex- matters, right? right? And to, to what extent does the legislature really control this? And to what extent does it get to say something and then courts later kind of iterate on that meaning in light of right. kind of things that happen thereafter? So, Jeff, you have an it's an excellent question, and it, and it raises kind of the fundamental issues about what courts are supposed to do and how legislatures are supposed to be treated. You know, what, what, how are they supposed to view the legislature? That's the essential question. Yeah. Jeff's question was probably in part about having been hit by this fee and not liking it very much. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Which we're not really addressing at, at, at that level, but it's a great, you're right. It is a great current event style question about the challenge of statutes. Another question. From a from a from a listener, uh, we got two questions about the nature of law school. This one from the perspective of a pro, of a prospective student. Um, and uh, are this, you talking about listener Michael? This is uh, listener Michael's email, um, who says that he's been listening for a while and he's got a show idea. He's wondering whether we do an episode on the process of applying to and starting law school. He just graduated uh, and is in the process of kind of preparing to take the LSAT, the um, ubiquitous kind of. Um, 
um, standardized exam that law schools use in admissions and picking schools to apply to. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, I know you don't like the U.S. news rankings. That was our Heart of Darkness episode. Mm. I think that was our first and probably final word on on the U.S. news <laughs> rankings. Um, but how should an individual go about making that decision? How important is the name on the diploma? And what does the prestige value curve look like? What are all the steps in the process? Uh, I know there's LSAT and applications, but is there anything else I should be doing? Should I be trying to get a job or internship at a law firm or a volunteer? Or most importantly, what question should I be asking that I didn't, need to, that, that I didn't even know to ask? Boy, this does deserve a whole show, doesn't it? I mean, um, in... in and as, as young people thinking about going to law school or even older people thinking about going back to law, is right. that something people should do if they're interested in it? Like what role could that play? There's another question that I'm going to get to from another listener that I have some more thoughts on the role of law school. But just I think he's asking at this point a very practical question. I know that I want to law school uh, – that I want to go to law school. Yeah. How should I How should I do it? And let me just say this. On U.S. News, we did a show heavily criticizing the methodology of U.S. News and the incentives that it creates for law schools. Yes. What a student should do with that information, I think we acknowledge that students need some kind of information about quality, information about what the degree is likely to mean after they graduate. Yep. And so I think we were in that show very sympathetic to the demand side of that equation. Yes. Right? But, um, we were just, I think, heavily, highly critical using research by others yes. of whether U.S. News did a good job of providing that information and right. what the provision of that, institu- of that information means for law schools because they do all kinds of squirrely things. People get in all kinds of trouble right. and we misdirect resources in order to chase the things that U.S. news say matter in law schools that we right. all know probably don't matter, right? And um, and then there's the whole thing about the um, uh, – that we went into where uh, – we went into – and this is research by others um, – that totally kind of random fluctuations can change rankings, and people, you know, so a school ranked 180th goes up to 170th and and for various reasons that can make a school which is ranked 18th drop down to 21st or something like that. And people get fired or pop champagne corks over this. I think that's the phrase they use and it has nothing to do with what was actually going on at the schools that we're celebrating. So, uh, so we have all those problems, but I'm sympathetic to the use of U.S. news by students. And I... I, it, 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 it speaks to a real need that they have, yeah. which is why it's been so successful as a marketing tool for the magazine that publishes. Yeah. Are you ready to give any advice about this? Do you feel, I mean, I, I'm struggling because I think, you know, I can't tell a student to ignore U.S. news entirely. I, I think that would be irresponsible. And the reason why it's irresponsible to say that is because uh, prospective employers don't ignore them. Yeah. And to the degree that you are pursuing education at a law school uh, because you want to practice as a lawyer, in other right. words, you're, you're getting the professional training uh, in order to be able to successfully take a bar exam. Right. Um, uh, most states require you to have attended an accredited school before you sit for the bar exam. Yeah. Most state bars require you both to have attended an accredited school and to take an exam before you can practice law in that state. So ultimately, you do these things because you want to have a particular job. And I would, you know, I think, yes, I think that's right. I think you should look at ranges. Like we we're, we teach at a law school, which is, I don't know, always ranked between like 25th and 35th or something like that. Something like that. That's the vague like aura that I might look at if I were a student, right? It's something like plus or minus five or six. And maybe it's more, maybe it's a smaller range as you get closer to the top two or three. And it's a bigger range when you're in the right. 70 to 80 range. Here's I don't what know. Would be, I mean, here's what would be nuts. Okay. Right? 
so one thing that would be nuts would be to say, well, here's the school. I get that- this a lot from Joe, by the way. You, a lot of things, a lot of my suggestions are. This <laughs> wasn't your suggestion. I'm okay. saying, right. if a student did the following, it would be crazy. Okay. Uh, for the reason you already alluded to, which is the 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 fact that the U.S. news methodology is highly susceptible to uh, wild uh, perturbations in the statistics, right? Uh, because of the methodologies they say. Well, you know, I was I was interested in this school, but I see that last year um, it fell four spots in the U.S. news ranking. Right. So I'm not going to apply to it. Because I thought it was good, but I see it's fallen four spots. It must not be any good anymore. Yeah, that's nuts. That's crazy. And we also know there, <laughs> we also know there are schools which are ranked um, lo- is- lower than ours, where uh, considerably lower than ours. And I don't know if San Diego is still in this position, University of San Diego, um, but they've got some fantastic faculty there. I mean, you can learn a lot from some of the people that they have there. Yes. Right. And I, I don't know anything else about the school necessarily. So I'm not, this is not advice to go in any particular place. I'm just saying that right. th- there are some well known oddities in the U.S. news. Yeah. So I think you've got to uh, say, rankings. so my, I mean, I think what I would say to a person in this, in, in this listener's position, and I, and I've never served on, on an admissions committee I, either at the school where I work now or the one I worked at before. Uh, so I, I might have a different view if I had seen up close and personally the admissions process from a committee member's perspective. I just yeah. haven't had that experience. So what I would say is um, that that the beginning to a lot of these, the answer to a lot of these questions that struck me was you, you, you need to be able to describe to yourself fair, fairly concretely uh, why you want to go. Right. Because the answer to that question, I'm going to law school because and the list yeah. right um that's going to inform things like does it matter where in the country you're going to law school right does it matter where in the country you want to work after you finish law school right because those two might have an effect on your choice um uh, well of what course if- separate and apart from why you want to go and what and what it might suggest to you geographically um uh, because as to many law schools taking your layered approach Right. Many of the prominent law schools, the top 20 or 30, um, there's a more of a national market for students and for graduates. Right. Um, at least in urban settings uh, that hire lawyers mm-hmm. to practice as lawyers. Uh, so you got to figure out that stuff separate and apart from that. There's the question of indebtedness. Law school is extremely expensive, but like a house that you buy and take a mortgage on because you want to have a place to live um, or a car you buy and, and uh, take a loan to pay for it over time. Um, uh, Well, actually better, better than those in some respects um, because it's not a wasting asset like a car is Uh, your education is an investment in yourself and your future earnings and your career. So you can approach it that way, right? Does this not, does it, it, it never makes any sense to take on any debt, but rather what is the level of indebtedness that makes sense for me, given what I think my career trajectory will be and how I will pay it back. And I should look right. realistically at that. And absolutely. And, and am I doing this as a pure cost benefit thing? In which case, I want a really good idea of the benefits. Um, I think some of our listeners will have, you know, probably have a little bit more of a seeker personality. You know what I mean? And and maybe they don't quite know what they would want out of law, or didn't know quite what they wanted out of law school. And I think even if you think you do, it's it's important to be open minded about what 
what you can get. I mean, these skills that you get from law school are really flexible. Yes. Even if it's sometimes overstated just how flexible your career is in the future. I mean, it kind of depends on you. It depends on your taste for risk, et cetera. So I guess I would say that um, if you are pretty sure that you want to practice in a particular metropolitan area, like, I don't know, Dallas or something like that. And so you want to, there's a good, maybe a good case for going to a, a law school in Texas and maybe even in the Dallas area where a lot of the people in the kinds of jobs that you want came from. So there's an alumni network and you'll get to know them over the course. Like that can be a reasonable strategy, but I would not rule out visiting other schools that you get into and applying nationally, right? So even if you're pretty sure you want to work in Dallas, you know, if you are a realistic candidate, why not apply to, uh, you know, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Penn, other places, I mean, elite schools, Georgetown, Columbia, uh, NYU, all, yeah, all of those, and Berkeley, and, and maybe UCLA, some, maybe UC some, Davis. maybe some state schools and places you think would be kind of cool to live and that sure. have a decent reputation. Why not Athens? Right. You know what I mean? Northwestern, you, Chicago. Yeah. Why, why not Athens? Though? That's what UGA, I'm saying. UGA, right. right? But um, and then what I would say is like you know even if you're pretty sure visit some of those schools. I, I certainly when I was choosing law schools, my mind was changed by a visit. Absolutely. Um, and, and the physical environment matters. The law school is very challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're in a place that's making you miserable just to live there, if you if you happen to be a person whose preferences about the place you live influence how you experience things to such a degree that in one place you'd be happy to be living there while you're doing this very hard work of law school, and in another place it will make you want to leap off the nearest building. <laughs> And you're suffering like that. You pay attention to that. That that does matter. And, and and when I visited, it was not only that, but it was also the sense that the students there were happy. Oh, in they the had school the right, in particular, right? Yeah, they had the right. They had they had a similar attitude that I did, or many did. Um, you know, not everybody. There's a yep. diversity of views, but um, and um, meeting some students and talking to some students while you're visiting a particular yeah. campus can be very helpful, of course. And there was a strong intellectual environment, which I liked, and I didn't see, you know, everywhere. So that was. Im- the visit was important to me because I felt like, boy, this is really, this would be great. And you know, I had that sense yeah. that this would be great. After it, I to do, uh, do you agree with me that to do a visit that can be informing in that way? Because I had the same experience with undergrad is mm-hmm. visiting a, the campus and, and it really sealing the deal for me and in, in, at so many levels. I feel like to do for a visit to do that, it has to be like a day and a half or or something like that. It can't just be like an hour. Oh, no, no, yeah. Mine was a full day. It was an admit day the school put on. So I was yeah. aware that this is like the school trying to sell itself. And, yeah. and and I think you have to keep that in mind. But it was a fair bit of propaganda. You know what I mean? I right. mean, they set up things for us to try to encourage us to come. But on the other hand, it was a fair view of the school. We attended the actual classes. We talked to other right. students. Uh, but, that, you you know, you, you, got, you have to put a day or, or a day and a half into this process to get the kind of information for yourself about will this be a place that really speaks to you i feel like yeah you've and it can be it can be small things too because i went to another school and it was also very good but there was just something subtle which was hard, which you picked up over the course of a day or half a day or that's more, why i think which you is, need yeah. to put some time into yeah, it yeah i think that's right i think that's right and um in terms of uh getting a job internship or volunteering at a law firm beforehand i you know there's um there was this study that came out about success in Law school, like using, you know, it was regressing on various variables. Ah. Did you see this? Um, uh, I'll link it up in the show notes because I can't remember who the authors were off the top of my head. But they compared like undergraduate GPA, LSAT, and then a whole bunch of other measures, including demographic ones and background 
um, and, and other elements of, of one's background and try to predict things. And it's interesting to see which variables were predictive and which were not of, of just law school GPA, which I do want to, we'll do maybe another show another time about how that's not the be all end all of law school, even if it is an important thing. Like you and I won't deny that grades are important, right? but, um, you look at people who are successful after law school and grades may have something to do with trajectories, but not far from everything. Wouldn't right. you say? Uh, yeah, because over, there, over were the just, there were just so many ways to be successful. Right. That, of course, it's a loose correlation. Yeah. Which, you know, I would love to see law school give people more niches to to show those things. But uh, that again, I think that's an, another show. But so one of the things that comes out of that is that, you know, the choice of major in college can be important. Mm. Um, the pre-law majors seem to have no predictive value <laughs> uh, for grades in law school, whereas hard sciences tended to predict positive performance. Um, so, uh, you know, trying to do things which are law-like before law school, I actually don't think is all that helpful. I mean, I think, you know, being curious, um, being rigorous and following your curiosity, you know, whether if your interest is in computer programming, learn to program, yeah. you know, if it's uh, um, in literary theory, you know, read a lot. If it's in... Um, you know, uh, music, maybe thinking about it more analytically. There was like a negative correlation between performance arts and law school performance. But again, I, I think, you know, it's just grades. It's not and, – and it, and it put a bunch of stuff together, you know, theater and music together and all these. So there may be disciplines which are more conducive to doing well, hitting the ground running in law school, right, than, yeah. than others. But I wouldn't – you know, just don't <laughs> – there's a part of me that understands the need to invest. There's also a part of me that just reacts against doing something in order for something else good to happen in the future. I, I believe in investment. Okay. But the idea, um, I, for law school, I just feel like, you know, establish, you know, you see why I'm struggling, Joe? I mean, like, I don't know that I want people, you know, I don't know that I want the students I would be teaching in 1L fall to be fresh off of a volunteer opportunity in a law firm um, or to work as a paralegal or something. Like, I, I have no problems with people having done those jobs or having those experiences, but yeah, it makes me, it richer when there's other stuff, you know? To me, it's, I, I do, well, I don't know whether I agree or not. To me, it's, here's how it strikes me. It doesn't, I don't care what, I care why. Yeah. Right. So what was it about that thing that spoke to you? What yes. was it about that activity, whatever it was, that um that meant something to you that was going to help you either develop some analytical rigor that you thought you might not have had or that uh what you know, w- what did it speak to in you? Why was it important to you? Right. Well, because I thought, you know, I'm not really sure what, here's a bad answer in my mind in yeah. terms of a person who I would say, I hope you think a little bit longer before you do this, right? Because law school is very hard and, and. Yeah, I, I don't, don't overstate it. Law school is very hard. I'm not sure I completely agree, but okay. it you're can a lot, be. You're, you're a lot smarter than I am. No, that's, a, um, <laughs> that's the first lie you've ever told uh, on this show. Uh, the first knowing lie. <laughs> The reason why you're doing this stuff is is what I would what I would want to hear and and a bad answer. Oh, you know, I'm not really sure why I'm going to law school. I just thought it would be something to do, and then I worked at this law firm because I thought, well, you know, law was in both phrases: law school, law firm. Uh, I feel I thought I'd see something about what lawyers do. That's just all very. That sounds like a person whose life is is buffeting them from from post to post, and not someone who's 
directing the course of the events for themselves. And that's what would worry me. Well, I will, I'll extend that. So suppose the person wants to go, knows why they want to go to law school. They want to, maybe, maybe they want a secure career and they want to work at a law firm. Maybe they know this. Mm-hmm. They are worried that law school is hard in the same way that you've just said, and they want to make sure they're prepared. Right. And so, boy, I want to, maybe I'll work at a law firm over the summer and then I'll get kind of a, a leg up. It'll give me, you know, it'll jumpstart the first year. Cause I've heard all these terrible things about how the first year is really, really hard. And I'm also going to read like, uh, Holmes's path of the law. I'm going to read, you know, I'm going to try to read all these, what should I read before I start law school, et cetera. And, you know, I've always said, you know, I, I don't know what you generally enjoy, but you want to find the things you enjoy, authentically enjoy them and continue to jo- enjoy them after you're in law school. If you st- were exercising before law school, keep exercising when you're in law school. If you spent every Sunday evening with family before law school, do that when you're in law school to the extent possible. I mean, there right. may be an exam the next day. I mean, there may be exceptions like there will be in any other aspect of life, but right. continue to do those things. And so what should you do, what should you do to prepare um, for kind of this unknown step? You know, what should you read? Well, what would you have read if you weren't going to law school? You know, it, what, you, how would you develop your person if it, not for that? I'd rather they read Infinite Jest than Path of the Law, uh, unless they really have an interest in that. That, that. That's why I agree with you about the why question. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, there'll be time to read the Path of the Law. I mean, there'll I be think, time to do this. We'll I do think this the in person who says, you know, I I wanted to get a leg up, so I I like I know I want to go to school. I want to have a secure career. I want to work at the law firm because I've heard first year is hard. I want to get. To begin, I want to start to steep myself in 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 the law as an environment. Um, I think that's a perfectly good reason to do those things if it speaks to you as you know clearly you're a person who you want to feel prepared. Yeah, you want to feel yeah. like you're. Um, I don't like think it prepares you. That's the problem. You uh, listen to my full point. You're a person who wants to feel prepared. You're a person who wants to exert some control over a choice you can make about how to get prepared. Um, at that level or in that way, that sounds like a good choice for you. It isn't preparing you because it's helping you learn a list of words. It isn't preparing you because it's someone who's actually conducting a law school class and you're in the classroom environment, so you're getting that kind of experience. But if it speaks to you because it's a, a way for you to feel like, well, I, I'm I'm doing something in that environment and that's what I want for myself psychologically then okay. So that, that's kind of the pacifier theory. You know, that, that you're doing it to, as, as to self-soothe rather than, rather than actually to prepare you. But the, if that's what you, mo- it, that is preparation. That's what you most need mm-hmm. at that moment to, to do well and to... I'm just worried that it just further exacerbates anxiety. It promotes a kind of attitude about law school, which is, boy, it's hard and I need to, I, it, I can never do enough to be prepared. Well, and so yeah, I'm prepare, I'm not, prepare, and I'm prepare. not advocating that. At yeah. all. And so I don't mean to uh, suggest someone should do something that that would exacerbate that problem because I don't because I don't think that's right. Well, if they actually want to prepare, you know, what? seriously, I think the best thing that you can do in like your summer before law school or the year before is like write a crap ton of stuff. Write, write things which are like argumentative or not, not trying to write a brief cause you don't know how to do that yet. But you know, if you've got a blog and you got an opinion about something, you know, write about that thing and then get feedback from others was, did, did what I write, did it make sense? Could you follow my argument? Yeah. Was it persuasive to you? Um, yeah, I would say that's really key. It's not just writing, it's writing in a loop that has feedback. Yeah. Um, you know, go to, if there's some kind of writer's, um, course 
uh, for, mm -hmm. for new journalists or some other sort of writing workshop kind of thing. So in other words, what, what I would not advocate in terms of something that's effective because it's writing, getting your perfect moleskin, getting your perfect pen and filling the former with the latter. Mm -hmm. And never showing it to anyone. That's not good. Yeah, feedback is important. Feedback's really critical. That said, if you enjoy creative writing and you want to write poetry for yourself, I'm not please saying don't do, do it. Please I'm do saying that. that's not filling the the thing you just said. In terms of preparation, if Correct. you actually want to prepare. But right. so, so part of me wants to say, don't try to prepare, right? Um, I hear that. And part of me wants to say that if you that there is this one kind of preparation that I actually think would be helpful, be, especially if you didn't do a lot of it in in undergrad. I think writing is a is a key weakness that many students come in with and, and promoting clear writing can promote clear thinking, right? And that's, yep. that's something you actually could do. So, and that's what well, you could do by blogging career, about something you enjoy, And it's a enjoy, career long priority. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's, it, you're making an investment, your writing skill, if you're improving your writing skill, you're making an investment that's going to serve you for your entire legal career. What's uh, a related point from listener Grant. So he writes, uh, let me, let me. Different <laughs> listener related point. Yeah, related point. The topic of law school is actually why I'm emailing you today. As I said in the subject, uh, I'm currently living in, it's okay to say the city, right? Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I finished my undergrad, took the LSAT around two years ago, however, decided I didn't want to go straight to law school for my undergrad and decided to move to Hong Kong for a while. I, I like this guy already. Yeah, this sounds like, yeah, yeah exactly. This sounded fun. <laughs> um, and he started to meet uh, lawyers from Europe, from Australia, from other areas. He, and he found out that the educational path for someone who wants to be a lawyer in one of these countries is a bit different from the one uh, we face in the States. Rather than completing a four-year degree and then spending three years at law school as we do, someone who wants to study law in the UK can begin studying law as soon as they begin their time at a university. After four years of study and an extended internship or training stint at a firm, they're f they are uh, full-fledged uh, full attorneys. And so he's referring to the practice in, in, in many parts of Europe. I can't say every part because I'm not familiar with it. Uh, and in Australia, I know this to be true, that yep. law is an undergraduate degree. Yes. And there's, as he says, there's usually like an apprenticeship that comes after, which is maybe a little bit like the judicial clerkship that we have, but it's usually in a firm uh, type or oftentimes in a firm type setting. Yes. I don't know the array of things that can count. Well, which is, I mean, he asked, which is better? Like what, you know, we take, at least in part, he was asking us our thoughts on what we thought. He was asking our thoughts about the comparison between law school as graduate school and law school as undergraduate school. Right. And in part, that was because of it was about a question of resources, right? Yeah. It's, it's, if you think of a law, legal education as your undergraduate education, um, that's cheaper in some sense, right? Yeah. You only have to go to undergrad school. You don't need to go on to grad school on top of it. Right? I, I have here in brackets under his email a question. It says, talk about my dream school, question mark. <laughs> Like, is this the chance? To, is this the opportunity to do that? I mean, to answer his question uh, or to answer this, uh, you know, what we think about this, uh, it, it does raise this issue of what law school should be. What role do you want knowledge about law to play in the society of which it's a part, right? Yes. And as an undergraduate discipline, it, you know, I would say that, uh, first of all, the answer to that question is not fully determined by whether you do it as an undergraduate thing or a postgrad did, did thing. Did you talk about, I, and I apologize, I didn't. I don't remember if you mentioned the the portion of his note that was about he he recognizes a trade off yeah about well roundedness for people who pursue an undergraduate degree and then law as a graduate discipline in the United States right versus abroad right using law as an undergrad focus did you right. read that part 
to the audience? I don't think I read that to the audience, but you just okay. summarized it well, I think. And the reason that I that I raised that is because it's um, you, your question, what do you want legal education to do, um, relates to his recognition of the trade-off and uh, in, in well-roundedness, although um, by positing the trade-off, I think he's he, he's pointing to something that was of interest to me uh, reading this note, which is how far back do you need to go to actually track the difference between the two systems? Yeah. Because I think uh, taking Germany as the most, uh, perhaps the most extreme version of the point, um, the, you know, law as an undergraduate discipline at university is the end of a road that's different from much earlier in the road compared to education in the United States. So when he says, here we do a graduate school, there they do an undergrad, you're not, you might implicitly be trying to say undergrad is the same in both places. It's not. Right. So it's, you, you aren't yet making an apple. So this is like an evolutionary tree where the, where the branch which was much earlier than that one variable. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that the, uh, for example, educational systems that that track and channel students into vocational and other educational tracks versus ultimately university-bound students. Right. right? Um, and again, Germany being the most extreme example. Uh, Germany, Austria, German-speaking Switzerland. Um, the gymnasium system. Uh, the, that tracking of people into educational tracks that determine career tracks. Yeah. Right? Um, that that is a that is part and parcel of the sort of middle school what we would call middle school and high school training that leads to university training right mm -hmm. and in these countries where law is an undergraduate discipline they t tend to do much more of the tracking of students at high school middle school such that many students are simply will never go to university yeah where they will pursue it and what is high school doing for the university bound students? Well, it's doing more of what our undergraduate institutions do. So there's a sense in which we both have the same system. It's just one is on a time delay. Yeah. Because their high schools and our universities are more similar to each other for the university bound student. It's really hard for me to answer which of those systems I prefer. I, I mean, you know, they, they kind of each have merits. I love the idea of the liberal arts education and the well-rounded student. I love teaching those students. I love people who are curious. I love education, which sparks curiosity. I think yes. the fundamental thing we do in law school, as we've said before in the show, is teach people how to learn more law. Mm -hmm. Right? We we give you a capacity to learn, and that's the, you know, that's sparking curiosity and a capacity to learn is is also at the core of the liberal arts education. Yes. So in that sense, I'm very American in my outlook. I think right. Yeah. Um. You know, I like, and the, I share the the everything you just said was a great thing. I wish I had said myself. Well, I I, I don't. You kind of did, right? I mean, in, in your explanation of the American system, and uh, on on the other hand, I love the idea of bringing more of what we do into the law school into the undergraduate education. I love the idea of helping more people understand what law is about, right? Because I, I think there are a lot of misperceptions about law. There's a lot of misperception about its technicality, about the kind of the role of an anointed priesthood uh, in interpreting what it is, right? And as we've said before in the show, and as I've written about, I don't think law, I don't think law itself is all that hard. I think that doing it right is hard, like anything else. But I think if it's taught directly, 
meaning the elements of law are taught directly and self-consciously, you could convey much about what we do in a single year, perhaps even to the right audience in a single semester. And so would more people benefit from that? I think so. I mean, I think bringing a class about what law is into, not just like, here's a random con law class you can take where you read a bunch of constitutional law cases. Those can be good. Look, I mean, I, I, you know, they I, can be, yeah. and I think, you know, if you're at a university and you're kind of interested in what we do on this show and that kind of course is available, you might really enjoy it. And you might learn a lot about structure and rights and other right. things. And um, I'm sure in lots of political science departments in the United States and universities, a course like that is offered. Yeah. I'm here, sure you're right. Here's my dream though. You want to hear my dream? Sure. Wasn't one of the subtitles for what we wanted to call the podcast originally is like, I don't know, society's source code or something like that, right? Mm. It, you know, this is, the, the law is kind of fundamental to how we organize ourselves. And maybe it is, is even the word we use for how we organize ourselves, yes. like collectively, right? It is the technology of social life. There you go. Um, so my dream is at the foot of the Wind River Range in Wyoming to establish a, a school, I think composed mainly of yurts, various okay. yurts. Love, um, I love a yurt. I love a good yurt. Uh a kind of school for people who are curious about law to come and learn where we teach it directly, you know, and you could come for a few months and, you know, I don't know how we would do this except a few months and you could learn this key thing. Maybe there'd be credit for it. And if you were interested in being a lawyer, you would stay on for longer. You would learn that core idea about what law is. And then you would learn, you know, then you would read the great books in your field rather than just the great books about law in general. And then you would gain kind of practical experience by applying those. So there'd be this progression toward specialization, not by specializing from the beginning, right? right? But by getting the idea right and learning how to learn law and then having your hand held a little bit as you began to learn a little bit of law and practice a little bit. This would be my idea. Okay. Um, and I, is that kind of, I don't know if that's not, that's not exactly the American system. The American system is Langdellian in the sense that, you know, typically you're immersed in your first year in, subject specific areas of law where you read a bunch of cases and through the immersion in a bunch of cases, you kind of intuit what law is about and you build a set of intuitions about what the law should be when confronted with a challenge. And then you practice what that is. Right. And I, I think there's a better way. Uh, and I also think that we could do that for undergrads. So I'd like to see a little bit more bringing law school into the undergraduate education. I'd like to see a little bit more bringing interdisciplinary modes of thought into the graduate education of law. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. long answer, I guess. But that's that's the, those are the beginning, beginnings of my thoughts on it. Um, did you have anything else to add? Nope. Well, the last feedback we have, we're not going to do it. Okay. I suggest that we, so we have uh, some wonderful emails from a uh, uh, listener. I'm, am I going to get this wrong? Rupesh? Uh, this was the one about mandatory minimums? Yes. And then two emails from listener Asher, longtime correspondent, longtime listener of the show. Now, the, the email from Rupesh just raised the question, and I, I, as we talked about John Pfaff, we're going to be talking about these criminal sentencing issues and the and prison uh, criminal the the broader questions of criminal justice reform. I think we're going to do a few more episodes on this. I think I think we right. are, and it may even be in the next one. Because what I would like to do, and we haven't talked about this, so we're going to work out the show right now, Joe. I love it. Live, this is great. Live. I would like to hold. I, I prepared for it today because I thought, well, you know, um, may, I really wanted to get to the sense of criminal responsibility and determinism and the death penalty. Now we're talking about listener Asher. This is listener Asher's email goes to this and um, and. Um, you know, uh, the views of various justices, and he, he mentions a few in here about the determinism issue that that uh, right. that um, that Josh brought up, Josh Lee brought up on our yep. last episode. 
because yep. uh, I, you know, I think I even said in that show that I, I could just hear and see listeners respond to his strongly deterministic argument by saying, wait a minute, we can't do away with a sense of moral responsibility, right? right? And so I want to do more with that. And I had prepared it today, but I think we should stop here. Okay. And in our next show, talk about moral responsibility, the criminal law and the death penalty in the age of like neuroscience and determinism and everything else. Ooh, cool. Should are we, we do gonna, that? Are we going to have a guest for that? Or is it just going to be you The listeners are just going to have to find out. <laughs> okay. It's, it's likely. And one of the hosts will just have to find out. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is, this is just how tight a ship we run folks. Can I, can show. I suggest something to uh, our listeners to that? They might want to, if they're so inclined, mm-hmm. um, something I was looking at. Uh, well, now that we're having a formal meeting, about the show, I think we should shift in, as we normally do, you and I, shift into Robert's Rules of Order. Mm. So if, is there, are you going to make a motion? Is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we, we pretty much use Christian's <laughs> Rules of Disorder. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, just something people might find fun if they have a moment and they're so inclined uh, before they listen to the episode that you've described. Um, there's an online uh, resource called the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And this is yeah. a really very high quality resource that's offered. Online. Very high quality. Yeah. And the, and the, um, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on free will, mm. uh, is especially, uh, germane to the sorts of things listener Asher mentioned in his email, these questions about determinism responsibility under the criminal law um and the broader uh, the, the the questions of causation and liability the intertwined questions of causation and liability yeah. which run throughout the law not just criminal law but civil law as well so you you cued in on that as well and i had looked i i had looked recently at the article on uh there on retributivism mm. the idea of retribution in law and how that interacts with right. our understanding of way brains work and uh so this and there, were, there are a few episodes on Philosophy Bites that I can recommend. So this is we'll a, get to that next time. Though. We've hit a very rich vein here. Yeah, yeah. Which we should talk more about. Yep, I think we should. Um, what else do we have to talk about today, though? I think we should call it. Uh, we should thank our listeners for sticking with us as we've kind of toured, uh, at some depth, a number of uh, um, issues that are other, that listeners have written in about, about. You should write in as a listener, right? Yes, Please, uh, oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we can't promise to get to everything, but we do absolutely read everything. We do. And I love getting feedback. It, what's, it's, as we've said before, it's the fuel that makes this show go, knowing that people are, are, are listening and thinking about you know, what we do. It's the jet pack that can take us all the way to Pluto. Oh, boy. <laughs> After many, many years. <laughs> Apparently. Apparently so. All right. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thank you.